Hello, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interact. Today, I speak with Dr. Kwame McKenzie, CEO of the Wellesley Institute, Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto, and Director of Health Equity at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Dr. McKenzie is an international expert on the social causes of illness, suicide, and the development of effective, equitable health systems. Thanks for joining me today, Kwame. Oh, thanks for having me on the uh, your podcast, Jody. Um, you said policymakers moving forward need to not only be thinking about flattening the curve, but also about who is under the curve. Who is under this curve that we're so desperately trying to flatten uh, in terms of COVID-19? Well, a lot of people would be um, thinking that everybody has an equal risk of uh, getting COVID-19. Uh, and so, um, we, you know, it's, it's everybody's under the curve. But of course, that's not true. Uh, we're in a situation where uh, there are some people who are at increased risk of getting the disease, people with, uh, due to their job type, say, for instance, who are essential workers working, say, for instance, in uh, grocery stores or cleaners or working uh, in health services or working with the homeless or working in long-term care homes. Uh, then there are other people who are going to find it difficult to uh, self-isolate uh, or uh, social distance, uh, people uh, who live in overcrowded areas. Uh, and, um, you know, so when we're thinking about who gets uh, COVID-19, um, it's, you know, it, initially it was the people uh, coming back from um, sort of international travel or the snowbirds, uh, but now, now it's in the community, it's the people uh, who are at most at risk of uh, getting infections. And those tend to be poorer people and racialized people and uh, people in service jobs. You're the Director of Health Equity at CAMH. You're the CEO of the Wellesley Institute. What is health equity? Where we're, we're interested in, in, in Wellesley about giving everybody a fair chance. So we're uh, interested in uh, social factors which uh, uh, we can do something about uh, that can uh, change uh, the risk of health. And so when we're thinking about uh, health, there are a whole bunch of social factors uh, that increase our risk. So probably the easiest way of thinking about this is to use uh, some data from the Canadian Medical Association. They say that 60% of what makes you ill is uh, who you are, how you live, and what sort of uh, a society or a community you live in. 25% uh, is your access um, to quality healthcare, and 15% is your biology and genetics. So if you take the first two, which is 60%, uh, is the social factors and 25% is your access to quality healthcare, about 85% of your risk is, is something that we can do something about. And when people are talking about, um, say, for instance, who you are, they're talking about sort of race and racism, gender, and whether you're Indigenous or not. When people are talking about how you live, they're thinking about your income, um, whether you live in poverty, education, employment, housing, or whether you're homeless, and your food quality. Uh, and when people are thinking about what sort of society you're living in, uh, 
your chance for good early childhood development, uh, whether you belong, feel like you belong to your community, social exclusion, what the social safety net looks like, air quality, how society, civic infrastructure, and really fairness, how fair your society is. So those sorts of things, that's 60% of your risk of, of illness are linked to those sorts of things. And most of those sorts of things are things that we have social policy uh, to try and improve. So when we're thinking about health equity, we are not just thinking about health care and whether we can get people access to um, uh, good quality health care, which, of course, we want to do. We're also thinking about what we can do about the things that make us sick and the things that keep us sick, those social determinants of health. And for every one of those social determinants of health, there are policy solutions. So that's what we're interested when we're talking about social determinants of health, not just health care, but also the social factors that make us sick, the social determinants of health and what can be done about it. You've said we're all at an increased risk if we don't start thinking about health equity in the context of this pandemic. Um, it's not just feel-good stuff, is it? No, it's not just feel-good stuff. Bear with me in this analogy. When the Titanic went down, 60% of people in first class were saved. 42% of people in second class were saved and 24% of people in third class were saved. And uh, the problem was they had one strategy for survival and, uh, you know, you had to get to the lifeboats. And people who were in third class in those sort of lower, um, you know, lower in the ship uh, and without uh, good access to being able to sort of uh, get up to the lifeboats, they were much less able to survive. And so... Uh, the first class people, um, you know, who had a 60% chance of survival were the people who were first to the lifeboats and they were able to go off, uh, float off into the distance, much more likely to be saved. Um, so the difference in COVID-19 is that um, we don't have lifeboats. People aren't floating off into the distance. Um, if people are saved, they're staying on the boat one way or the other. They're staying in Canada. And if you've got people who are getting sick uh, and if you've got populations who are not being saved, uh, the infection stays there. It doesn't go anywhere. And those people who think they're saving themselves uh, actually uh, are just, they're buying time, but they're going to get infected. The only way you can actually have a good response to COVID-19 is to have an equitable response so that you can flatten the curve for everybody. Otherwise, you know, uh, the people at the top of the, uh, of, uh, the economic food chain are, are, are actually, they're not going to save themselves. We have to do it together. You have to work together to make sure that there aren't um, parts of the community who are more likely to be infected because if they are more likely to be infected, they will continue the pandemic and they will uh, pass on that infection. Plus, the actual people who are more likely to be infected are people who are considered to be in essential jobs. So they're the people who are cleaners, they're the people who are working 
in supermarkets. They're the people who are working to clean the hospitals and work in the hospitals. They're the orderlies in the hospitals. And uh, there is no way that, um, you know, they, they're not cut off from the rest of, uh, of society. They're part of the rest of society. And so they become an area of infection that is going to pass it on to everybody else. And um, we're all in this together. And I think as soon as we start thinking about that and realising that, um, and realise that we can't have policies that are one size fits all, we actually have to have policies that meet the needs of everybody. And we'll find out that we get a better response uh, to COVID-19 and uh, we're more likely uh, to be able to decrease deaths. So we're all on the same ship, but we're not all at the same levels of risk. You know, even with a virus, these social factors can't be eliminated. And I was particularly moved by um, a statement from uh, Black health leaders in Ontario. They said that the last few weeks have shown us that COVID-19 doesn't flatten disparities. It amplifies them. We're seeing really... um, uh, tragic numbers come out of the United States in terms of impacts uh, to African Americans. Um, but in Canada, we don't seem to be collecting race-based data in terms of COVID infections. Uh, you know, is data as good a place as any to start uh, when we think about trying to bring, bring a health equity lens to our COVID-19 response? I think data is important. I do think that we can think about how we create, um, while we're waiting for the data, we should be trying to at least use our brains to think of what an equitable response might look like. But but I think, you know, in democracies, uh, being really basic, you count stuff, don't you? And if you're not counted, uh, then you don't count. Your needs don't count. Um, and... Uh, what we've seen in COVID-19 is that increasingly uh, policies are based on numbers. They're based on infection rates, death rates, whether we are flattening the curve, um, who's, uh, you know, the economic projections uh, and how much government is going to give to one part of society or the others. The numbers are really important. And um, if you're invisible, in these numbers, it's very difficult to have a policy produced that's going to help you. Uh, So I think, um, you know, the numbers are really important. They need to be disaggregated so that we know that our policies are actually fair, but also so we know that our policies are actually working. Um, You know, you, you can see in the pandemic response in the U.S., that um, the response is working differently for different people. But what people don't realise is in a pandemic, you are as strong as your weakest link uh, because we're all in this together. And if one part of the community is not is not uh, being protected, is not being uh, looked after, then that's a problem for the rest of the community as well. Um, I mean... Another way of looking at it, using a medical jargon, and you know, I'm a doctor, and if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you're a doctor, everything is through a doctor's lens, and I apologise for that. 
Uh, but every doctor takes a history. And the point of the history is, is to help understand the circumstances of the individual so that you get the right treatment. And every doctor knows that if you take a poor history, you give the wrong treatment and you get poorer outcomes. And everybody, every doctor knows that you have to change the treatment dependent on the individual. And public health is medicine. It is public health medicine. Uh, and it's no different. It's just that the history is data. And if the data is poor, you haven't taken a good history, you haven't got disaggregated data that tells you the types of treatment or the types of public health interventions you need for different groups, that doesn't tell you which groups need more help than others, uh, you get poor outcomes. But the problem with a pandemic and infectious disease is if you get poor outcomes, those poor outcomes are not only for the groups that you're not serving. They're poor outcomes for everybody because we're all linked. So we have to have good data, but we have to have good data that we can disaggregate so that we can identify what's working, what's not working, and who it's working for. And then we can think up new strategies to make sure that everybody gets the same outcome. And that is the basis of health equity. It's not that you have one size fits all. Uh, it's that um, you change your response dependent on people's needs so that you can get similar outcomes for everybody. And everybody knows that's what you do. You know, some kids need more food than others to, to grow. Uh, and um, unfortunately, this sort of one size fits all or they're not collecting the data um, leads to poorer outcomes in general because um, different, you know, some people are just missed. So you've said governments at all levels uh, need to look at their response policies through the eyes of the most vulnerable and account for bias. In addition to empathy, are there tools that governments uh, should be using to help them do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there are things, uh, loads of tools. There are things that uh, there's something called a health equity impact assessment tool. And it's a structured tool that says to uh, in, says to people when they're making policy, okay, start off by tell me, telling me what this policy is and what's it trying to do. Next, let's think through what the possible uh, beneficial or negative effects can be for different populations. Are there people who are going to do better than others? Then the third thing you do is, is there any evidence uh, that uh, to make sure that, you know, those ideas that there's differential impact in the policy, um, is, is there actually any evidence that I've got that can substantiate that? And then if it is, you can then say, well, you know, are we happy with that? You know, and if we're not happy with that, what strategy should we move to make this, to, should we change uh, at, in order to um, make this policy more equitable? And then you see whether when you... Um, uh, you know, when you implement the policy and you implement the, the changes to the policy in order to uh, produce equity, 
whether you get the same outcomes uh, for different groups. And if not, then you say, is there another mitigation strategy that we should have? But this health equity impact uh, assessment tool, uh, they've been created across the world. Uh, they've been created across Canada. There's a great one that's uh, of use in Ontario. And it helps people really just think and work through what um, the equity impacts are of their policies. And what we found when people use this, it, it starts from the proviso that most policy people uh, do not get up in the morning saying, how can I produce a policy that works better for one group than another? Most people aren't trying to produce disparities. And a lot of the disparities that are produced are just produced because people haven't thought it through. And so that health equity impact tool uh, assessment tool helps people think through um, what disparities would look like. And, and in COVID-19, there are actually at least four areas, not thinking about the different populations, but four areas that people have to think about. Uh, they have to think about health disparities linked to the disease itself. So change different groups will have different chances of getting the disease and different groups will have different um, chances of a bad outcome. Then there's health impacts because of the public health response. And, um, you know, some of that can be, you know, that, that the public health response may be to flatten the curve. But it may also produce other problems in like, you know, uh, problems in the family from people being cooped up together, um, problems in diabetes due to decreased activity, um, you know, increased stress and different access to diff and access to food. Then there are also problems because of the medical response. So there are going to be uh, sort of uh, surgery that's cancelled. There's going to be less availability of uh, uh, treatment for existing problems. Um, and uh, there are going to be people when, as medicine turns into being more telemedicine, who just don't have access uh, to the bandwidth or computers or ability to use telehealth. And that will produce differential uh, health outcomes. Uh, as will the fact that the medical response and even the use of uh, um, sort of personal pr protective uh, gear has been focused on hospitals and not on uh, homeless shelters or long-term care homes or institutions. And then the third, uh, the, sorry, the fourth uh, level of impacts of COVID-19 on health will be impacts due to the economic downturn and, you know, unemployment and lower income uh, linked to stress, uh, but also linked uh, to housing, uh, opportunities in education, opportunities for healthy food and, a, a possibility, and your possibilities of being part of the community. And therefore, they're also linked to health. So we've got problems due to the disease itself. We've got problems due to the public health response. We've got public due to the problems due to the medical response. And we've got problems due to the economic downturn. And all of those uh, are and your, your chances of poor health outcomes due to those. They are all linked to the social determinants of health as well. So uh, unless we really start thinking this through uh, and really thinking about, you know, we've, what 
these policies mean and how they're going to work differently for different people, uh, we can't move towards what we hope will be a better um, society uh, post-COVID. I spoke with Dr. David Naylor earlier. He's, you know, the author of The Lessons Learned from SARS. And I asked him about, you know, what what lessons learned are we already seeing uh, in uh, in this pandemic's context? And right away, he talked about, you know, a need for universal basic income. And he hopes in this post-pandemic world, we pay much closer attention and invest uh, much more in the social determinants of health. Um, you know, that's it, it's really significant that we're seeing these disparities so starkly at this point uh, in the pandemic when we still have quite, you know, quite a long road um, ahead of us. Are it is. Are, are there things, are there policies that, 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 that you're seeing or things that, that you're hearing um, that give you some hope that, that, that we're starting to maybe be more sensitive to the, to the differential impacts of our policy interventions today? I'm taken by, um, you know, the, the work that was done by the Hamilton Spectator, um, I think 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago, where they did the Code Red in Hamilton. And Code Red in Hamilton showed that there was a 21-year difference in the average uh, age of death for rich areas versus poor areas. And, um, you know, this is in place in Hamilton. And, of course, it's a post-steel um, uh, uh, town and there are some economic downturns. But all over the world, people have seen these huge disparities in health. There has been some progress, actually, things like the uh, children's health uh, benefit that's come from the federal level have made a difference. Uh, I think that the uh, federal level, uh, the changes in EI uh, and accessibility and, of course, the Canada um, emergency relief benefit uh, have all uh, and are all going to make a difference. I also think the support that's been given uh, to industry uh, has made a difference. And so uh, looking at that and looking at uh, the fact that increasingly um, people have seen that uh, fiscal policy rather than monetary policy is what gets you uh, through these sorts of big challenges uh, makes me wonder if after this uh, and when people sit down and they think, well, just a second, with global warming, uh, this is, I think, our fourth big infectious disease. I think two out of four of them were pandemics in the last 12, 13 years. Um, you know, sorry, 17 years. Um, you know, have we got the balance between fiscal and monetary policy? And you know, is intervention at the um, federal level going to be uh, something that we're going to have to see more of? if we're going to uh, keep ourselves safe going forwards. Uh, so the fact that the Feds have intervened and the way they have, uh, I think has been a very positive thing. I would agree with David Naylor that uh, going forward, the idea of uh, thinking about uh, a basic income uh, is, is quite important. And I think that 
think I'm not sure whether you get through it get through being called a basic income, but thinking about a basic income, I think, is an important thing to be thinking about and thinking about um, the floor. Uh, you know, the lowest level we think people should be able to um, should be at uh, in in Canada. But I, I think we should go a little bit further. Because whether we're talking about our poverty level and our market-based measure of poverty, uh, or we're thinking of the basic income, we tend to still think, uh, and we use the phrase basic, um, to, to think about the level at which uh, we want to set um, the assistance that we give uh, to people in Canada. And I think one of the things that we've seen from COVID-19, just about every pandemic, um, is that uh, we do better as a society uh, when people are thriving, when they're not just uh, living hand to mouth, when they're not in a situation where they're one or two paychecks away from catastrophe, but when they're actually thriving, when they're healthy. And so I think that if we have a basic income, we should be uh, or we have any sort of social assistance threshold that's higher than it was, that it should be at the level where um, we can say that people are being given enough to live a healthy life. And when we're looking at the market-based measure of poverty at the moment, uh, you can be above the poverty line and still not have enough money to live a healthy life. So I'll go a bit further and say, that we we need to uh, be looking at the uh, gap between rich and poor, but we but our baseline, our bottom line should be that we should be giving uh, Canadians uh, enough to live a healthy life, and health should be uh, the focus of the level of support we give to people. And health just isn't physical health, right? It's also mental health. Um, you've discussed. Um, policies to build psychological resilience and that such policies have five uh, key components um, that support people uh, keeping connected, keeping active, learning something new, being mindful, and opportunities to, to give back. Um, what countries have uh, psychological resilience plans like this already? So, uh, thanks for reminding me about that. Um, in an optimistic moment, <laughs> I, I started thinking, well, okay, we have a situation here where people uh, are having to uh, move back from, uh, where some people are having to move back from the hustle and bustle of uh, everyday life. And this can be negative or it can be also an opportunity and the question would be, what sort of society do we want to move into? Uh, what's, what, what does a post-COVID society look like? And one of the big problems that we've had um, pre-COVID is mental health. And um, when people think about mental health, they often think about, you know, what individuals can do in order to uh, keep themselves resilient. Uh, but there's some work out there uh, that's been spearheaded by the WHO, uh, that have been picked up by parts of Europe, including um, the UK, where they've started saying, what does a resilient 
psychologically resilient mental health, more mentally healthy society look like? Uh, And, uh, you know, this is something that's been pioneered, uh, sort of mental wellness in Scotland. And they've got a whole bunch of policies they've been trying to develop uh, to help that. And also New Zealand and uh, latterly Australia have been thinking the same as well. So across the world, people have been uh, thinking this. And some of them have been doing it from an economic perspective, been going further and doing it from an economic perspective. And so in the UK in the 2007 to 2010, they had a a big piece of work uh, that was published where they said, you know, how does the UK become and keep its uh, economic, um, uh, you know, its economy going? And how does it uh, keep its competitiveness? And they came to the conclusion that in a thought, uh, um, in, in a thought economy and in a service economy, it was quite important to um, uh, it was quite important to preserve uh, people's uh, mental health. And the reason for this is they said, well, you know, somewhere like the UK is not going to outproduce a, a, a lower income uh, economy, but it could outthink a lower income economy and the things you need to do to be able to outthink other people is build people's intelligence, their IQ, build people's emotional intelligence, their uh, EQ, and also preserve their mental health. So this idea of preserving mental health, um, building emotional intelligence and building uh, um, sort of normal intelligence is known as mental capital. And building mental capital uh, is uh, considered one of the ways of building uh, not just a a nicer society to live in, not just a healthier society, uh, but a more economically productive society. We're reading in the media uh, that there are concerns that mental illness may be, you know, kind of another wave of this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, How concerned are you about that? How concerned should we be about that? Oh, we should be very concerned. Um, There are lots of different issues that come to the fore um, with the um, COVID-19 we actually don't know whether there are direct um, impacts of COVID-19 on the brain. We don't know whether there are long-term uh, impacts on the brain. And we do, don't know whether, like in some uh, infectious diseases, uh, people are more likely to get uh, depressed um, or uh, suffer any other mental health problems because of COVID-19. So we need to collect that sort of data. We know that uh, uh, COVID-19 may, uh, a fear of COVID-19 and the anxiety of COVID-19 is an issue for people. Uh, And so we need to be, we need to uh, be thinking about that. We also know that the public health response, um, we know that um, cooking up families together uh, especially families where there maybe has been abuse uh, or um, sort of domestic violence is is an issue that that will there'll be some uh, mental health problems that will happen because of that. We know that we expect an increase in substance misuse and alcoholism. Uh, we would expect an increase in uh, anxiety. 
and uh, we would expect the stress of the public health response uh, to lead to increasing mental health problems with other people. We know that the fact that there's going to be less access to face-to-face -face mental health services and cancelled appointments will mean that some people with existing mental health problems um, will get poorer treatment and poorer outcomes. Uh, and we also know that in an economic downturn, um, with increasing stress and unemployment, we often see increasing uh, substance misuse, but we also see increasing rates of suicide. So when we put all of that together, um, you know, the impacts on, um, and, and then we add to it um, the impacts of stress on um, the people who are the emergency workers, who are considered the essential workers, uh, and uh, the health service, uh, we can see that there's likely to be sort of quite a significant mental health toll of this pandemic. And at the moment, we have been so focused on um, flattening the curve that we haven't really spent as much time as we could have done uh, in thinking about uh, the mental health sides. But I, I do know that between, um, you know, that there are different levels of governments and different agencies in government who have been trying to get together to think about this and think about what a plan should be, uh, both on the research side, but also the policy side, uh, to improve the, um, but will to decrease the impacts of um, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, on mental health. Dr. Kwame McKenzie, thank you so much for your time, for reminding us uh, to look for health promotion in all policies and that there really is no health without mental health. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on.